Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have sung tonight of your power, the power of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that in this passage tonight, we will see real workings of your power as Peter was unleashed from that cell. And so I pray tonight, Father, that you would take these words from Acts and the words that I speak, and may your Holy Spirit make them your words for each one of us. Amen. Well, uh, we're in Acts uh, chapter 12, verses, well, the whole of the chapter, really. Um, And I don't know whether you get excited about Acts. I get excited. It's a really dynamic book, isn't it? Lots is going on. You couldn't get much more an exciting thing than we've got in front of us tonight. Uh, Alan had originally called this sermon Angels and Worms. I subtitled it The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And I shall refer back to that a bit later. But um, Acts, of course, is the book which tells us how the message of Jesus and how his gift of salvation spread through the Jewish people uh, in Jerusalem and in the kingdom of of that area and then out into the Roman Empire to non-Jewish people, to the Gentiles. And, of course, eventually it arrived here in England. So my text tonight is found in verse 24, which you can see on the screen. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. And that, of course, is despite all that had happened. That's the message of Acts. And we can learn from this account tonight of how there is opposition to the gospel. There is opposition to the gospel, but also how God acts despite these atrocious events. And it's relevant to us because we're still a part of that process of God's kingdom being expanded. Now, we have uh, before us tonight a mighty account that took place in uh, Jerusalem. It took place on the eve of the Passover festival. It includes danger, tension, worry, uh, extreme events and uh, angelic beings with miracle workings. And it involves, I think, some of the big questions of life, doesn't it? Why do these unpleasant events happen? What type of God is there, if there is a God at all? Well, as we get older, and this is my own experience, these big questions get harder and harder to answer. Why is it that that child is born so deformed whilst others are very healthy? Why is it that some people develop cancers and others remain very healthy? Why is it that some suffer, some lose their jobs, some get killed? All large questions. And we see that here in this passage. If you like to look at verses 1 and 2, just have a look what it says. Why is it that James, who had received so much teaching, he'd spent three years with Jesus, he'd received training from Jesus, and yet he was allowed to be killed after such a short period of time, whilst Peter was rescued from almost sure death? If we're honest, of course, we really don't understand, and we can't explain these actions. 
Now, if you want to try and understand and explain them, I would recommend that you go onto our website and download the Job series that we've been following recently in the morning services. Diana Tim spoke on suffering. Mark spoke on how God answered Job's complaints and rantings. And he answered that God is God. Who are we to challenge him? But returning to this account before us, we have the following characters. We see here, we've got the Apostle James and Peter. We've got King Herod. We've got soldiers. We've got members of the Jerusalem church. And we've got an angel. We have, in my terms, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, Alan tells me, of course, that I'm of a certain generation. And um, uh, that, in my mind, when I was reading this and thinking about it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, this is what came to my mind straight away. Now, I apologise for the younger members of the congregation if you don't remember that film, but uh, I'm not going to say anything about the film, but it just uh, brought that to my mind, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So who are the good and the bad and the ugly in this story, this account that we have in front of us? Well, the good, look in verses 5 and 12. We read of many people, they were church members, They prayed very earnestly for Peter and the situation that he was in. The good is represented by the people we read of in verse 12. They're gathered to pray for Peter. Now, you've got to get it into some sort of context because these members would have known of those that had been arrested. They would have known of the killing of James and they would have known of the arrest of Peter. Now, I don't know what you feel about this. Probably, you know, not a great deal. But so I tried to think, well, what would it be like today? Well, imagine this. One day at midnight uh, on Alan's rectory door, there's a knock. And he goes to the door. And this man is in full riot gear. And he knocks on the door and he says, are you uh, Reverend Strange? And Alan says, yes. He says, right, come with me. Two days later, another knock goes on Mark's door. Are you Mark? Yes, come with me. And one of them's killed. How would we feel? We would be terrified. We would be worried. We would be anxious. And this is what it must have been like for those, uh, those events there. They must have been scared of what had happened to James and now to Peter and what might happen to them. They were at risk. So what could they have done? Well, they could have hidden. They could have run off. They could have gone to other places dispersed around the country. But what do they do? They gather together to pray for several days through the festival and through the night. So in my book, they're the good people. But what about the bad people? Well, the bad people uh, are seen here. We often recognise, don't we, that children inherit some of their parents' and family's characteristics. Well, we see this here with Herod. The Bible tells us of four generations of the Herod family, each leader leaving his evil mark. We've got Herod the Great, who murdered the Bethlehem boy babies at the time of Jesus' birth. We've got Herod Antipas, who was involved in Jesus' trial and John the Baptist's execution. 
We've got Herod Agrippa I, seen in this passage, who murdered the Apostle James. And then we've got Herod Agrippa II, who was one of Paul's judges, the Apostle Paul's judges. So, the whole family of the Herods seemed to be a pretty rotten lot, really. And this one, Herod Agrippa I, ruled Judea, Samaria, and parts of Palestine. And he was called a king and the friend of the Jews, a patron of the Jewish faith. And he maintained friendly relations with the Jewish religious leaders. And then we've got the ugly. Well, what's the ugly? Well, I think the ugly is seen in the method of the death of Herod. Look at verses 22 and 23. He was consumed by worms, which was the result of his refusing to worship and acknowledge the Lord God as the only God. This was God's judgment, which came from the living God upon Herod. But of course, the good and the bad and the ugly raises questions in our minds. Why was one apostle killed and another rescued? Why did God allow Herod to have so much power that he could kill one of the disciples? And why did God act through the work of an angel? Many questions raised here, some of which we can answer and some we will never know the answer to. And it's the same today, isn't it, in the society that we live in. Alan's already referred to some of the problems in our society. Why do some suffer persecution? Well, we read today that there's persecution of Christians in Nigeria, Kuwait, Malai and Kenya. Why are some so unwell? Why does some hold power and use it in such a bad manner? Well, in this account, though, we see the action of God. We see the obedience of Christ's followers and we see the involvement of the family of God through prayer and aid. So as we look at this passage, I'd like to bring three points to you tonight. The first one is this. The response to danger. The response to danger. Prayer. In this account, we read of what's happening. People were in danger. People didn't know what would happen. We, of course, have the benefit of hindsight. They didn't. We read in verse 5, the church praying. And in verse 12, many people gathered to pray. We see the believers meeting together, being prepared to give up time, several days during the festival and all through the night to pray for Peter and his situation of imprisonment. And they appear to believe in the power of prayer. Or was it just desperation? Well, we don't know, do we? But we have the benefit of hindsight. Yes, we can see the result. We see Peter's release. But whether that was the direct result of prayer, we will never know. But for us, we do have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of many examples of prayer in the New Testament. Matthew 14, verse 23, we see Jesus going up on the hillside to pray alone, to speak to his Father. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed in incredible stress as he knew of his approaching crucifixion. We see other examples in the New Testament of the young church meeting together to pray. We read in Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, that Jesus instructs his followers to keep on praying. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, we're told to keep on praying without ceasing. 
So why then do we find it so difficult to pray? Well, I believe we need to realise that prayer is a spiritual exercise and there is a spiritual opposition. The devil hates to see people praying, so creates many hindrances, whether that be busyness in life, noise, a crowded lifestyle, unbelief, a feeling of unworthiness, all can hinder our desire to pray. But in this account, we see the opposition of Herod. He'd killed James to curry the favour of the Jewish authorities. And he appears likely to kill Peter after the Passover festival. But we also see the power of communal prayer. Sometimes it's really difficult, isn't it, to pray alone. And yet I've found great help and insurance when we meet together to pray. Just to give you one example, the early morning prayer meetings that we hold in church on a Wednesday, up to about 20 people meet at 7.15am, that is, am, 7.15 for 30 minutes. There's comradeship, there's the opportunity to be quiet before the day really starts, and there is a united presence when we work with the Holy Spirit for God's will to be done. And I would encourage you all to take that opportunity to pray. Yes, pray alone, but meet together, join together. Alan's already advertised the uh, once a month uh, evening Wednesday prayer meeting. Join together, community prayer. And we see this in this passage, don't we, tonight. We see this in the response of the young church. The new believers in that young church were stressed. They must have been terrified and in danger, and they met together to pray. And I believe this is what God wants his followers to do. So if we want to see God's kingdom moving, we want to see God moving amongst people, we want to see people turning to God, we need to pray together. That's one of the messages I believe we have from this passage. And of course, we have real opportunity to do this. We've already heard tonight of that uh, community games that we're holding in July the 14th. Well, we need to pray for it. We need to pray that the weather will be good. We need to pray that relationships will be formed. We need to pray that God will be seen there so that his name is honoured. There's lots for us this year to pray for. So let's be getting together to pray. Because that's one of the messages from this passage, I believe, tonight. But secondly, the second thing we see through this passage, I think, is the work of God through the spiritual world of angels. The work of angels. Now we live, don't we, in what's sometimes called a rationalistic age where we expect everything to be physical, everything to be able to be proved scientifically, and as a result of which many people ignore the spiritual world which can't be proved in that manner. And it's easy, isn't it, for us as Christians to live our lives without acknowledging the supernatural world. Well, our faith has to include it. The resurrection of Jesus has to include the supernatural world. The concept of heaven and hell, the forces of evil, the presence of spirits, they're all found in the New Testament. And Jesus speaks of all of these. And there are many references 
it to angels in the Bibles, an angel being a messenger of God. So if you look in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 5, uh, an angel of God goes to speak to Elijah to tell him to eat. In Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6, angels worship God. Psalm 91 verse 17, the protection of the Lord for he will order his angels to protect you. And of course in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 27, the Son of Man will come with his angels. Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 4, great verses on how Jesus' followers are to live hospitably because you will entertain angels. So throughout the Bible, we read that angels are involved in the work of God. And in this passage this evening, there are three mentions of angels. You might like to look, verses 7 to 10. The angel comes to rescue Peter. Verse 15, it must be his angel. Verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck Herod. I think it's important to to note at this point that the rescue of Peter didn't involve any physical action of mankind. In fact, the servant girl nearly made the situation worse as she left Peter standing on the doorstep. So there's real tension and danger here for Peter and the young church. But here we see the supernatural being involved in the work of spreading God's kingdom. Now, of course it raises huge questions. Huge questions about angelic involvement and the supernatural outcome. The Bible speaks of angels at various points, but doesn't give us any organised teaching on the subject. No, angels are just introduced into accounts as recognised facts, like God is. The Bible never sets out to prove the existence of God or of angels. The Greek word angel means messenger, a race of beings of a spiritual nature above that of a man, yet infinitely below that of God. Messengers of God whose task it is to do God's service in heaven and to aid man on earth. Now, just in case you find uh, belief in angels difficult, be comforted by the fact that Peter seems to do so as well. Look in verse 9. Peter thought he was seeing a vision and that it really wasn't happening. Yet in verse 11, two verses on, we read, Peter did come to realise that it was an angel and the events were real with the supernatural events of doors opening and chains coming off. Now this is not the time or the place to go into detail concerning the nature and purpose of angelic beings. There have been many good books written on the subject, not the least of one by Billy Graham many years ago. However, I think we do need to acknowledge their presence and be aware that there is a spiritual world which is very different to the material world that we live in. Too often I find that my faith is restricted to the physical rationalistic world in which I live. And I believe we need to live in the reality of the spiritual world which is not confined to the physical world in which we can touch and feel. Recently in this church here, we heard of angelic appearances and work when the Bishop of Baghdad came and spoke to us of what's happening to the church in Baghdad in Iraq. 
And it seems to me that these spiritual events seem to happen when mankind is not relying upon his own strength and wisdom and is often in danger. God appears to work through these events when mankind can't solve the issue through their own strength. And so we see in Acts accounts of miracles happening. In fact, we read of miracles happening throughout the New Testament. Now, I know that some today find it difficult to believe in miracles, yet we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that miracle workers will be a part of the Christian church. Supernatural events are part of God's work. They're a part of God's kingdom. And it's when we try to reduce God down to a reality that's locked into a small time and place that we so often miss seeing the power of God at work. If you think about it, miracles have to happen when an unbelieving person turns from their pride and comes to confess and worship the living God. That's a miracle. And, it requires, and it's what's required for all people to enter the kingdom of God. And so we see here the dynamic work of an angel being who is doing God's will. He's overcoming the military might of keeping Peter locked up. Now, of course, though we can recognise this event, it doesn't answer the question of why Peter and not James. Well, God is God. His will be done, we pray in the Lord's Prayer. And sometimes we just have to accept that we can't understand all of God's actions. But if we take seriously the accounts of the second coming of Jesus, then we should expect to see more of God's working through the spiritual world. So my second point then is the work of God through the spiritual world. The third point is the peace of God that can be seen through, sorry, Mr. John, the peace of God seen in the Apostle Peter. Now, we don't read a great deal about Peter in this passage, but I'd like to point out the peace that he had. Now, you might well say to me, Nigel, how do I know that he had peace? Well, look at his situation that he's in. He's chained between soldiers in a cold cell. Now, I don't know what you'd feel like, being chained between two soldiers in a cold cell. The next day, he was going to be tried and he expected to be killed like James. That's the reality for Peter. Yet yet here in these verses, in verse 6 and 7, we read that he was asleep, chained between two soldiers. Surely this shows us a man that was at peace. How could we sleep if we thought we were going to be killed, executed the next day. We'd be worried, wouldn't we? We'd be anxious, we'd be frightened concerning what the next day would bring. Well, surely this is the peace that only God can bring by his Holy Spirit. Now, we see other examples of this in the New Testament. For instance, when Paul is imprisoned, again in a jail, we see him and we hear of him singing and praising God. Truly an example of the peace of God which Jesus promised to his followers. That's a part of the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring peace to his followers. And this is the example that we can pray for. Now, of course, we may not be facing this type of danger, but we may all have difficulties and worries in our lives. So consider what Psalm 37, verse 5 says, "'Commit everything you do to the Lord.'" Trust in him and he will help you. 
And I find that uh, a great help for myself. We've been going through uh, not the best of times this year. Okay, so, you know, but it's a reality. We can pray for that and we should seek that. And we can also pray for those in prison today for their faith. If you don't know about these situations, if you don't know about where people are suffering for their their faith, then there is an organisation called the Barnabas Trust. And they uh, support Christians that are suffering for their faith. They produce publicity and campaigns on behalf of the suffering church. And here we've got an example of modern-day church doing what those early Christians did as they met together in that house praying for people, for Peter. And so we too can pray with other Christians in our world today. We can pray for those in prison. We can pray for those being persecuted for their obedience in following Jesus. We can pray that they will know the peace of God like Peter. So there we have it. An an amazing account, an amazing story. How can I conclude? Well, we've seen tonight, haven't we, how Peter was imprisoned for his faith. We've seen within Acts the power of the opposition of the gospel. We've seen the work and the action of the evil one. And yet we've seen the church of Jesus continue to expand and move on. We've seen how the church prayed together how God sent his angel to provide a way for Peter to escape. So I hope that tonight we can all take encouragement from this. We live in a world which does include spiritual opposition to the spread of the gospel. Don't be surprised, even within our own country, and it might be even in Norwich, where opposition comes to Jesus and his gospel. Whether that be from politicians and laws, from the media, from friends, family, or in the workplace. There will be opposition whenever the claims of Jesus are being made. We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. But we can rejoice in the fact that God has the power and authority to enable his purposes for his kingdom to be fulfilled and that we can participate in this through prayer and the church community. The imprisonment and release of Peter does indeed have many lessons for us Christians. It helps us to see that God allows some believers like James to suffer more than others. How the church needs to be in constant prayer and dependence upon the Lord, and believe that he can and does respond to prayer. But just as importantly as that, it serves to remind us that God is able to free a person from the shackles of sin and to testify to the power of God. Amen.